Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. In the fall of 1929, the effects of the Roaring Twenties literally came crashing down. Americans had left their farms and rural towns for the promises of wealth and excess only found in big cities. Unfortunately, the stock market, which had been on a meteoric rise, finally fell from the sky and took with it the fortunes of countless investors. This kicked off a period of time known as the Great Depression, which lasted from 1929 until 1939. And during those 10 years, People lost their jobs, their homes, and even their lives. But one man refused to let the depression get him down. Instead, he channeled his sadness, his anger, and the last of his money into some prime swampfront property in New Jersey. His name was George Daner, and he believed that he had been led to New Jersey by an angel. This same angel allegedly gave him a vision of what he would build on the four acres of land that he purchased for $4. And so George walked for 10 days and 112 miles to the South Jersey town of Vinland. Once he arrived, he got to work building himself a house with whatever he could find around him. The walls were crafted from random rocks and pieces of cement, while he used old car chassis to make floorboards. Fenders were bent into gables, and he repurposed old bed frames as doors. He even made the paint from scratch by grinding up red bricks into motor oil. Any object, vehicle parts, or piece of debris was fair game for inclusion in the home. Wagon wheels formed the base of towers he built around its perimeter, and he carved up a massive cypress log for his dining table. The chairs were made from smaller stumps. Around the exterior of the property, George had dug out ponds and cultivated gardens. To keep himself going, he relied on the natural New Jersey fauna for sustenance. There were plenty of rabbits and fish to eat, as well as squirrels and even the occasional frog. By the time he finished in 1932, he was ready to unveil his Depression Palace to the world. George Daner had built it to show visitors that they didn't have to let the current economy keep them down. He believed that, and I quote, Education by thought can lift all the depressed peoples out of any depression, calamity, or catastrophe. George Daner welcomed people into the palace for 25 cents apiece and gave them grand tours of the various rooms he had constructed. For example, he had guests crawl through an area named the Jersey Devil's Den before visiting a room he called the Knockout Room. This room was home to a single chair above which George Daner had hung a large boulder. He encouraged anyone who wanted to forget their troubles to sit in the chair and let the boulder take away those worries. No one as far as we can tell, never sat in that chair. George was quite a character and a brilliant marketer. Robert Ripley, of Ripley's Believe It or Not fame, published a cartoon about the Depression Palace, and George appeared on the 1950s human interest television program You Asked For It. A documentary film titled The Fantastic Palace was also made by Universal Pictures and followed the intrepid homeowner around the house on one of his tours. The Depression Palace's popularity came to a head in 1957, though, when George Daner inserted himself into a very serious criminal investigation. An infant named Peter Weinberg had been kidnapped in New York State. 
The police and the FBI searched for weeks and were eventually led to the Depression Palace by Daner himself. He claimed that he'd been contacted by the kidnappers, who had allegedly stowed the child in one of the dungeons in his home. The authorities arrived, and George was forced to admit that the whole thing had been a charade. He'd done it for the attention and to draw more tourists to the house. As punishment for providing false information to federal officials, he was sentenced to one year in prison. The house was left abandoned, and tourists kept coming, but not for guided tours. They picked the place clean and stole all sorts of random objects from the property. They even burned down part of the house. Daner was released one year later at the ripe old age of 100. He was an old, broke, and broken man with almost nothing to his name. His home was in a serious state of disrepair, which he was too old and destitute to fix up himself. He died on October 20th of 1964 at the age of 104. The city eventually tore the rest of the structure down in 1969, but it wouldn't be gone forever. In 2001, a nonprofit organization took up the cause to restore the eccentric home back to its former glory. Over the next 16 years, with help from numerous grants and donations, the Palace of Depression was mostly rebuilt and a small museum was added next door. This strange and unconventional home continues to persist through depressions, recessions, abandonment, and new ownership, truly living up to the reason it was built in the first place, to show people everywhere that, no matter how things get, home can be anywhere you make it. Even, apparently, if that home is made out of old car parts and bed frames. One of the oldest sports in history also happens to be one of the most violent. The concept of fighting another person has existed since the dawn of humanity, but fighting someone for sports can be charted all the way back to the 3rd millennium BC, possibly even earlier. We simply don't know because of the lack of written record from before that point. And while boxing has taken on many forms over the years, the sport we recognize today seems to find its early roots in England during the 16th century. Back then, it was called bare-knuckle boxing, or prize fighting. This was an era before weight classes were established, before they even had referees to call a match. As time passed, though, boxing as a sport was often outlawed and considered no different than any other illegal activity. But it sure was popular, so much so that Thomas Edison and his staff filmed a fight in his New Jersey film studio in the 1890s. You see, Edison wanted to test his new kinescope by showing short films that he had made at the studio. This boxing movie would be one of them. In the film, two fighters named Sullivan and Corbett went head-to-head, -head, their hands clad in boxing gloves as their manager watched from outside the ring. The manager was a circus owner by the name of Professor Welton, and his traveling show was quite a spectacle. Forty performers entertained audiences with daring feats of danger, such as jumping through flaming hoops, and putting out fires. Welton's Circus made appearances at countless vaudeville theaters all over the U.S. at the turn of the century. The man himself was quite an established trainer up to that point, which made sense. Most of his family was in the training business as well. Sullivan and Corbett had trained for two years before they made the Edison film. The movie was directed by William Kennedy Dixon, one of Edison's employees and the man responsible for bringing both the kinetograph camera and the kinetoscope to life. He also came up with the idea for using 35mm perforated film in both devices. 
But the accountants at Edison Studios weren't convinced that people wanted to see a boxing match on film. After all, they'd witnessed such exciting sequences as a handshake, in which a man and a woman shook hands for four seconds, as well as Fred Ott's sneeze, a five-second tour de force where one man experienced the earth-shattering relief of unclogged nostrils on camera. Dixon and his cameraman, William Heiss, believed the boxing match would not only be exciting, but also profitable. With kinetoscopes starting to appear in most major cities, people were going to line up and pay whatever it took to see the fight of the century. And so the filmmakers pointed the camera straight at the boxing ring they had set up in their West Orange studio. The fighters were brought in, gloved and ready for action as Professor Welton took a seat behind them. Watching the film today, it's hard not to sneak a glance at Welton, who can't seem to take his eyes off of Corbett and Sullivan, as they rain down punches on each other for a whopping 20 seconds. That's right, their new movie tripled the length of their previous endeavors. It was a glimpse into the future of cinema, as stories would require more time and more film to say everything they needed to say. And wouldn't you know it, the boxing picture was a hit, and not only demonstrated the capabilities of Edison's technologies, but also the skill with which Professor Welton trained his fighters. After all, it wasn't easy tying such boxing gloves on their little paws. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, Professor Welton was in charge of a traveling cat circus. His fantastic felines could do all sorts of tricks, like ride bicycles and walk across tightropes. In fact, the cats were so well-trained, it only took Dixon and Heiss one take to get the footage they needed of the fighting felines. You may not be able to teach an old dog new tricks, but Professor Welton proved that you can at least teach a couple of cats to box. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.